Hey guys, just Nick here dropping in to give a brief content warning. In this episode, we do discuss themes of sexual assault and trauma. So yeah, if that's not your cup of tea, then I would suggest listening to another episode where we don't discuss that stuff. So not the milkshake one. Don't listen to that one either. That one actually gets a lot heavier. Welcome to As A Film Student. I'm your host, Nick. And I'm your host, Mon. Today is a very special day, isn't it? It's, it, it's, it's gay Christmas. Gay, gay Christmas? What is gay Christmas? I don't know. I feel like there's something to be talked about, about how Halloween is very largely accepted by the LGBT community as a very big holiday. But also, I feel like it's just Gen Z's holiday as well. It actually is. I feel like we as Gen Z kind of hijacked the holiday and now it's just our holiday because we have a whole month dedicated to Halloween, despite the fact that in Australia we don't even celebrate Halloween. It's just yeah. purely an excuse for us to like dress up. And in Mean Girls, it's an excuse for the femmes to dress up slutty. But like that should be every day. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, dress like a slut, unless you don't feel like it. Unless you don't I feel, feel like, like it, yeah. what we've done with Halloween is what white mums do with Christmas. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> <Anyways>. Anyway, <laughs> so today we will be looking at Jennifer's body. You know how last year we were looking at that big masculine cult horror about an alien hiding inside men's bodies? Well, today we're looking at a cult horror about a demon hiding inside a woman's body. It's a feminist masterpiece. Honestly... I have heard so much about the film. I think just being a film lover and you're watching, you know when you're like on YouTube and you're watching watchmojo.com and they're like best um, or like most sexiest moments in horror films and all of that stuff. And then you have Jennifer's body coming up at number one. It's like number one, Megan Fox in Jennifer's body. And it's like, wow, I had no context about this film at all. I just kind of like heard that it's like a really, you know, it's a feminist classic and I was like, okay, I'm just going to just watch it. But growing up, you would see it kind of talked about a lot in online spaces and some of it is good and some of it is very negative. And I find that a very interesting symptom of kind of the media space that we're in today. Okay, so Jennifer's Body is a 2009 horror comedy that follows two teenage girls, Jennifer and Needy. Jennifer, played by the previously mentioned Megan Fox, gets sacrificed to the devil by a small rock band trying to make it big. However, because she lies about her virginal status, she comes back as a succubus and begins a murder spree, specifically targeting the boys in her high school. Needy, played by Amanda Seyfried, uh, is the only person who has a chance to stop Jennifer as she is her best friend. Mm -hmm. And it, it's so fascinating seeing kind of how when, like, especially the film's reception um, during the time it came out. And we're going to start off talking about the reception of the film because that is kind of what makes the film such a feminist classic today and why it's had a revision on the way people critique it and the way people watch it and the way people consume it. And the reception back in 2009 was completely different to what we expected. Okay, when I was like nine when that movie came out. 
I was not even allowed to watch anything that had blood in it. I could not even watch the Harry Potter series because it had several scenes that were violent and there were actually blood and I would cry. Like I could not watch anything that was gory or bloody because I would legitimately cry. Um, I was such a pussy. I was such a little bitch. I, I wish I could just like time travel back to the 2009 and just slap my slap my little face. Just just Dude. like little mon you're a little bitch okay (laughs) stop being so scared of literal blood and gore okay i know you're a child i know you're not capable of actually understanding any any of what anything means but stop it yeah i'm a sigma male (laughs) i got that sigma male mindset i got that sigma um, male grind set nick I think one of the main things, obviously, I was nine as well, so I don't particularly remember the marketing, but I did go back to watch the trailer, and one of the reasons why this movie wasn't well-liked when it came out is because of the expectations that were set up by the marketing. This movie was... I I don't even know how to describe the trailer. It was just leaning into the male gaze and it was trying to advertise to a target demographic of like horny young boys Mm -hmm. who were too young to see the movie in cinemas yeah like a a 12 year old boy isn't going to be able to see an ma15 plus film Mm. (laughs) and And the parents aren't going to take them yeah and i think that what was really messed up was the marketing of the film as well the posters featured like megan fox in like a mini skirt and you can see her pose which is like very tantalizing and it's very inviting and it is genuinely the male gaze despite the fact that the film was directed by karen kusama and written by Diablo, I, I think her name is Diablo Cody, who are both women. Like, a woman produced, directed, and written this film. And why do we see the male gaze implemented in the marketing of it? It, it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. It's even the trailer itself. Like, the trailer depicts, like, Megan Fox in all of these, like, scanty clad items. And then... You also see that kiss scene between Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried. And there's like so much emphasis on that because, oh my God, lesbians. That's like so hot. Girl, like girl and girl action. Haha, <laughs> I'm going to get so much smart. Yeah, um, the director, Kusama, said that the irony of the film is was lost on the marketing team. Mm. And I don't know if you've read this, but she once asked for an explanation behind one of the ads that was really fixated on Jennifer's body. And the email she got in response wasn't even grammatically correct. It was just, Jennifer's sexy, she steal your boyfriend. What? Oh my (laughs) god. I actually didn't even know that. Yeah, so what you're seeing is just sometimes trying to you know incorporate irony trying to like be a little bit smart with things Mm. advertising does not like that it does not like you being smart and it doesn't like subversive pieces of film that go against the status quo exactly and you know what was very interesting was that the the casting of megan fox was done intentionally because during that time she was at the height of fame because she just kind of was riding off the high and the fame of Transformers. And we all know in Transformers, when that was released, she was 21. And at that time, Michael Bay, everyone basically over-sexualized her. And when she spoke out against that over-sexualization, she started to be vilified and literally demonized by media. 
Like, it was cool to hate on Megan Fox because she's a woman. And people would compare her to, like, Napoleon or, like, Hitler because she spoke out about over-sexualization and the fetishization of herself by the media. And, and, and to the point where Steven Spielberg, you know, who was the executive producer of Transformers, I believe, actually fired her. Like, she did not come back for, like, the second or the third film. I don't know. I the don't watch third it. film? Yeah. I think she only appeared in the first two. I haven't seen it either, but yeah. I remember reading it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's just, this level of misogyny during the early 2000s was just accepted. And I was looking at all of these reviews about the film, and they, like, all these people, they got the wrong idea from the trailer, right? And the posters, they think it's just going to be, like, you know, sexy Megan Fox. And when they find out... It's actually not Megan Fox um, being sexy. It's, it's actually more than that. And it isn't really about the male fantasy. Uh, I don't like it. Me no likey. Because she has her clothes on the entire time. Hmm. That's actually literally a review though. Like in one review by like this guy named Combustible Celluloid. They say, Jennifer's body is not funny, nor is it sexy brackets the girls keep their clothes on close bracket nor is it scary open bracket it's all just special effects close bracket what what <laughs> what well it's all just special effects imagine like going into the thing and going it's not even scary it's just special effects it's just like, special effects like and imagine thinking that in order for something to be sexy it has to be like you have to be naked what the fuck I, what kind of, like, one brain cell thinking is this? Not even Mm. one brain cell thinking, no brain cell thinking. This is just pure, this is just pure beta male behavior. Not even beta male. Just this, just not even, just, this just men. (laughs) This is the episode where we just shit on men, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, basically. Because that's what the movie does. Exactly. What Megan Fox said about uh, herself is that scene where she's getting sacrificed by the band. She said that that she really resonated with that because that was basically what the movie studios did to her. They just bled her dry. They didn't care about her well-being. And they, it didn't matter how many times she spoke up. In fact, speaking up got her basically like shunned and blacklisted and that's why we kind of see the renaissance of this film yeah and with the renaissance of this film i feel like in the 10 year anniversary of um jennifer's body megan fox actually went on the eli roth podcast to talk about jennifer's body and there's a lot of talk around it and she actually says that she is actually really glad that people are kind of looking at the film in a more you know critical light without actually focusing on the prior elements of over-sexualization all of that of her but more in a feminist lens and how it's actually she says it's a nice circle and she actually didn't expect it to really I guess like evolve in that way but obviously like she was really glad that it, it did and she felt kind of okay she was part of she felt like she was part of the problem why the film didn't actually succeed the way it should have because of the fact that she had all this negative press and all this negative media surrounding her and as a result, that kind of dampened the, I guess, success of the film and how people actually perceived the film. And so looking back at it, like, I feel like 10 years ago, obviously the media landscape was incredibly 
different and people are more aware of the hypersexualization of femme presenting people. And at the same time, at this 10 year anniversary, it was also during the height of the Me Too movement. And so obviously people are much more aware of it and people are picking up on it. And you start to see that this is a film ahead of its time. It was just so revolutionary in its concepts, in its politics, in its, you know, kind of relationship with the viewer and the idea of the gaze and the power dynamics of of men and women. And it basically takes every idea from kind of Stephen King's Carrie, but basically revitalizes it and evolves it. You can look at it in multiple perspectives and you can basically deconstruct it in so many ways. Yeah, uh... I feel like it's really interesting because it wasn't even the 10-year anniversary. It was around 2018, which is what caught, like, the creators off guard. It's like, there's no anniversary, but there's this massive cultural shift occurring in America. And all of a sudden, people are going back to this film. And because of the way that the situation around them has changed and the way that they are seeing things differently, they now see this film differently. And honestly, this film really deserved better. It deserved to be looked at with a critical eye like that. Mm. And I feel like that media landscape during the early 2000s was, like I said, incredibly different. But there was heaps of people during that time that were actually talking about it. It was just that an overwhelming majority of people panned it because it was directed, written, and it had Megan Fox in it. And... Unfortunately, the media just loves to hate on women, just as how they hate on Twilight. And I remember I was reading this Roger Ebert review, and he basically he basically said that Jennifer's body was Twilight for boys. I don't understand that connection. He wasn't even one of the ones who was panning it, though. Exactly. He he's he wasn't really panning it at all. It was just an interesting kind of like look at kind of the reception back in 2009 because so many people were panning it. So I watched this fairly recently. I don't know. I haven't actually heard much about it. Like it's one of those films where it's like, yeah, I know the title. I know the poster. I've seen it floating around, but it never really grabbed me. I did. I just didn't care about it. And then you're like, hey, what about Jennifer's body? I'm like, sick, finally an excuse to watch a film. Mm, <laughs> Not a film, like, this film. This and... film, yeah. And yeah, because I've never seen it before, like, I haven't even seen it at all until like today on the <laughs> day I'm recording this. Because like two I two seconds before we hit literally play. two seconds before we hit play. Yeah, like I didn't even know that this film was so dense. Like I just kind of like I think everyone kind of knows this who knows me. I'm not a horror person. I just can't watch horror. I don't appreciate it, and I wish I could appreciate it more. I'm more into like weird shitty fucking animation films and i don't know why i i I rewatch like the boss baby another few times for fun or like i play the boss baby interactive game a game on on netflix just so i can get comrade baby again i don't understand why i do that but maybe it's the fact that i like subjecting myself into horrible media because it makes me feel better okay it makes me feel happy because i need some serotonin in my life anyways besides the point Jennifer's body is just so, it's just refreshing because I expected like a scary horror movie. This is a horror movie that's scary in a different way because when I watched it and when this, when this, the scene where she gets into the van 
I legitimately was terrified. Yeah, that that hit too close. I was like, oh no, this is adult fear. Men don't find this scary, you know? Like, obviously they don't find it scary. But as a woman, when you're watching other women be treated like that on screen, that's terrifying. That is a deep fear that a lot of femme-presenting people and women have, you know? And it's, it's genuinely scary. Mm. And Jennifer's body represents that. But it also represents not just a fantasy or like not just a sex fantasy it's 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 a revenge fantasy that's what the film actually is it's just a revenge fantasy and i'm not gonna lie i love it i think it's empowering watching a woman take back that power and kill men and although yes killing sucks this is a fictional film okay <laughs> it's a fictional film and sometimes it's just nice to enjoy i think uh because I'm like the opposite of you. I love horror. I I have just been watching exclusively horror for like the past week at this point and probably like all throughout October. And I think the actual, the scariest bit of this, uh, of this movie, like the thing that makes it a horror, like you said, uh, when she gets into the van, but also the fire in the bar genuinely terrified me. It was, the way it was shot, the sound effects, the sound design on it, there wasn't really anything supernatural going on, it's just a fire in a bar. I don't know if you got got the vibes that maybe it was started by the band or something, or they just took advantage of the situation, it was just a horrible yeah. accident. And but... that was, that was terrifying, that was what I wanted to touch on later on as well, was the fact that when that fire started, like, you could tell that, you know, Needy, Amanda Seyfried's character, realised what was going on. She kind of was like, oh, this band is really sus, you know? Like, they're, they're super sus. But her and... susness is coming not from the supernatural elements. It's coming mm. from them being skeezy males. Exactly. And that has nothing to do with paranormal at all. And then you see, obviously, when they escape, they're in a very traumatic state. When, you, when you're literally so out of fire, of course you've been in a traumatic state. And they took advantage of that. And when you see... Him, when you see like just their reactions and their cold kind of comments after that fire and the fact that they took advantage of um, Jennifer like that, you see kind of the fear in needy, you know? And it's just like that fear is also within us as viewers as well. Like yeah. we don't want it. We don't want Jennifer just to be subjected to that at all. The other terrifying bit was when uh, Jennifer becomes the succubus and she goes to needy's house and she just starts eating the chicken and throwing out black vomit. And something interesting that I realized, like watching this film, is that you actually see the emotional toll it is taking on Needy. Because you don't usually see that in horror movies, because it's either so fast that characters can't process their emotions, or it's just ignored. But no, you see the aftermath, you see Needy cleaning up after all the black vomit goo and all that, and it's... It's really touching on the emotions of people in the situation, which I feel like is a very feminine touch. It is. And I feel like that's also not just a feminine touch, but it's a human touch as well. Like, I think with horror films, that yes, they kind of reach this inner corner of your psyche that makes you kind of quiver. But at the same time, this does something very differently where it makes it feel more human to kind of see her in that state. 
Um, because anybody witnessing a person that they love and deeply care about go through something like that, she went through that and she didn't even know that her best friend would have survived. And she knew those guys were skeezy. Mm. So, but she I, couldn't if, stop them. She couldn't stop them. And that it's that powerlessness and that kind of hopelessness. And I feel like the hopelessness really is one of the major keys to a an effective horror movie because you can have your shitty little jump scares and all that but all that gets is if you're like me uh, you jump you know that's it it's not a lasting feeling but th- when it seeps into dread and hopelessness and the fact that you lose your autonomy as a person that's when it gets like that's when it actually starts hitting and we see this uh, too in when Jennifer's being sacrificed. She'll say anything to regain control because she's come back to her senses. She's no longer so shell shocked after the fire and she's being tied up and is getting killed, basically. Yeah, she's getting killed. And what was messed up was the fact that these men were laughing, they were singing a song while she was dying. And that's something that unfortunately is incredibly realistic in the film because that happens and i don't want to bring this up but like um do you guys do you know brett cav what's his brett, brett cavan brett kavanaugh yeah the yeah, uh, brett kavanaugh yeah this so, uh u.s supreme court justice if you guys uh, don't remember in 2018 he had a sexual allegation uh brought up against him before he was sworn in and it was a really long drawn out process for the uh, victim uh like really just bringing out this private trauma into the public sphere and she was trying to do it for a good cause she was trying to do it so that this objectively terrible piece of shit human being did not hold one of the highest positions of power in the u.s judicial system and it didn't work because of course it didn't and he is a U.S. Supreme Court justice for life. Because apparently 80-year-olds having jobs is something that's good in America. I, why? Like, why <laughs> are all retire. their presidents so fucking old? Like, Can just they... lie down, Grandpa. Just, just, just retire. Like, chill out. Go back to the, go back to the nursing home, Steve Rogers. Okay? <laughs> like, um, yeah, but the only reason why I brought him up was because... During the trial, I could be wrong, but from what I've read, they said that the um, those accusations and allegations of laughter happening from the people around him while the act was happening. And that's something that happens. And it's hard for me to really talk about, I feel like, because it's hard for any woman or femme presenting person to talk about because it's just horrifying laughing at the pain of of someone um and treating if it's like a joke and then not having your allegations being believed yeah that that whole sacrifice scene because you know you, you, like you said you can look at this film through lots of perspectives uh one of the ways i saw it was how it's a comment on how like male musicians and men famous men all men not all men <laughs> whoops um uh, how they abuse women for their own gain and they get no consequences. Meanwhile, a woman is left traumatized and changed for the rest of her life. And the only concluding consequences that the band face 
is from Vigilante Justice. It's a woman taking the power into her own hands to bring about justice for her friend. Mm. And the most craziest thing was that that woman had to be empowered herself. Mm. Because of the bite that Jennifer gave to her, that allowed her to perform and break out of jail. And it sort of trickled down economics of power from the patriarchy because the patriarchy kills Jennifer. Jennifer Mm. bites Needy. Needy kills the patriarchy. Exactly. It's it's like Reaganomics, but it works. And it's interesting because, like, Jennifer didn't really give up a big fight while fighting with Needy. Like, I expected a huge, powerful fight, Needy getting, like, you know, absolutely destroyed. Because you're literally fighting against a demon, right? Mm. But Jennifer just kind of accepted it. And I felt like that was genuinely a beautiful scene where she was falling to her bed. And Needy was just up, like, on top of her, holding a box cutter onto her heart. I thought that was genuinely beautiful. Like, it was biblical in a way. I was like, okay, that's a really... Like, that's a really nice shot. Like, it's a nice sequence of events. Yeah, and it's like, my tear, your heart. And that's, that's a really, it's so small. It is such a small little exchange where it's like the female sexualization, the body is the same as its emotive thing. Just, it's the same thing, but you see it from two perspectives. Jennifer sees her tit, Needy sees the heart. And it's something that I really want to talk about is... Speaking of Jennifer and Needy and their two differences is the fact that their differences is separated by the idealisms of feminism and there's different subsects of feminism. Um, And something that is very fascinating that I find is that Jennifer's body represents several types of feminism that's being displayed. So the first is lipstick feminism, um, the second is conservative feminism, and the third is separatist feminism. So, like, have you kind of heard about those three terms before nick uh yeah vaguely in passing but the thing with lipstick is i usually associate it with lipstick lesbianism which is probably derived from like the similar concepts of femininity and reclaiming typical feminine shit i i definitely will hop off that and actually say that jennifer herself represents lipstick feminism and Needy actually represents conservative feminism. And I'd say lipstick feminism, if you guys don't actually know what that is, lipstick feminism is basically a variety of like third wave feminism, but it seeks to embrace the traditional concepts of femininity and including the power of sexuality and the sexuality of women. And what it does that, like, like you said, Nick, like it's reclaiming the word slut or reclaiming the word whore and in a way, it's meant to kind of be an ideological backlash against the radical, like the radicalism of second wave feminism, where it's like, burn your bras, you know, like, you know, men are horrible and all of this shit. And, you know, the whole stereotype of the ugly feminists and all of that stuff. And you know that, oh my God, do you know that meme of um, the uh, girl holding the book and she's walking and then... Um, oh, and she drops oh, the book. And, and she drops the book. No, no, she, she, becomes... picks, she picks up the book. Like, she starts off as a bimbo. She bends, yes. sees the book, bends down, and each time, like, her dress gets a bit longer and then it turns into mm. pants, and she turns into, like, a little goth girl or a little she turns, Oh, she girl. turns into, like, a little nerd. Yeah. A little, like, nerd. And she's like, oh, my God, oh my like, God. it's such a fucking good meme. 
most cringe is that I used to actually, like, believe that stuff and post that stuff because I was not like other girls. I was, like, yeah. the girl on the end with the book. Do you, <laughs> like, I, this is a slight tangent, but when people say not like other girls, when you're a teenage girl and you say that you're not like other girls, you are actually aware of your, um, kind of, your, you're aware of your, the patriarchy. And you're aware of the misogyny that is around you. And so to kind of diverge away from traditional sense of femininity, you say that you're not like other girls. You don't want to perform like other girls. You don't want to perform the acts of what society wants girls to be. And so unfortunately, young girls who say that they're um, not like other girls are actually just aware of the patriarchy. And that's why a lot of people that say that they're not like other girls actually turn out to be, you know, huge feminist after mm. they realize that after they grow up and they're adults. And so I used to be like that. For you, it's a bit different, Nick. <laughs> Sometimes when they say they're not like other girls, they just end up turning into men. <laughs> yeah, sometimes that just happens where you're like, I'm not like other girls. Oh, wait, I'm not actually a girl. Yeah. Um, but I feel like that's something like after you grow past that not like other girls that lipstick feminism sort of represents. It's mm. you go back and it's like, oh, wait. I actually like performing femininity in the traditional sense. Like, mm-hmm. makeup is fun. Being a slut is fun. Like, th- this does not harm my gender. I am not some sort of gender traitor for conforming to these certain ideas that I did not pick out. Mm. And Jennifer literally embodies that. Like, she uses her sexuality to kill men. And... As a result, that is kind of an example of lipstick feminism at its finest. Needy represents like a conservative um, feminism where she believes that um, women need to work hand in hand with men and it will be a longer process of reaching equality, which is, you know, completely fine. But it's funny how that is considered conservative. That's just something that I just wanted to point out where feminism can be conservative when you want to take the, like, the long road. But... I guess with like radical feminism, you kind of want action and you want action as soon as possible, which is completely valid. But yeah, like I I feel like those two type of feminisms actually put against each other, just as like society puts girls against each other. And it's funny because like the film tries to recognize the fact that women can be women and women can have different beliefs. But at the end of the day, you are still women and women will never win. No matter, <laughs> women will never win, okay? <laughs> women will never win under patriarchy. We need to fight that shit. Um, and I feel like that's a really, like, that's kind of how I analyze it, which is pretty dark. But like, I, I find that it's, it's, it just showcases the different subsects of feminism in such a wonderful way. And how separatist feminism comes in is the idea of separatist feminism is actually separating man and woman. I'd say there's heaps of controversy around that statement and around separatism because I don't think separatism in any way is good, my personal opinion, which is the right opinion. Separatism is the belief that women are different from men and women should not be with men and men are essentially useless and men should not exist and men should be kept on the ground and only used as breeding, as, you know, as breeding. To be submissive and and breedable. To be submissive and breathable, Nick, Actually, that's right. Mon, why are you describing paradise? <laughs> like, imagine just like being underground, being useless, 
admitting that you're useless and the only time you're of use is to be broke. Exactly. <laughs> going to have to cut that out. That got too horny. No, do not cut that out. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. But I and and basically Jennifer embodies that kind of feminist separatism as well. She does not like men. She basically kills a lot of men. But the scene where she kisses Needy, she doesn't actually try to kill her. She genuinely wants to be with her. And when Needy rejects her, it's like rejecting her feminist ideology. Then that's when they're pitted against each other. And again, like I said, it's how society pits women against each other. Mm. Uh, one of the interesting things that I noticed, and I might have to do a rewatch to see, because you don't really get that much of a sense of who Jennifer is before the uh, possession, because she was a bitch before. She was not a good person before she gets possessed. But afterwards, she really becomes this idea of what men want from a woman. She's mean to other women. She's really open for attention. She wants male the male gaze, but she doesn't do it in a way that's needy. She's aware of her sexuality, but her being a slut is a good thing. She's somehow towing the line, and that's basically impossible for any woman. You can't actually do that. It's this made-up idea, and if you want to achieve it, you gotta die and become possessed by a demon. So this is connected to the idea of the monstrous woman. And so the monstrous woman has been around since basically the dawn of media and the dawn of storytelling. And it's essentially the idea of women being the monster. And it was actually kind of, I don't know, I don't remember who it was termed by, but I did know that in the 1970s, there was a huge popularity of vampires and of women vampires. And Barbara Creed actually writes a book called The Monstrous Feminine. And she actually starts talking about the kind of rise of the women's liberation movement alongside the kind of rise of the idea of the monstrous woman in film and cinema. And so the monstrous woman basically depicts women as monsters, as beasts, as demons. You see it in Carrie, you see it in um, definitely Jennifer's body and how she becomes kind of like a succubus, eating men, killing men, girl bossing, too close to the sun. (laughs) And... It's, it's a really interesting idea because it connects to Julia Kristeva's idea of abjection. And so what is abjection? I, I think I actually spoke about it last year um, on our Halloween episode about the thing and about how women are treated as an abjection. But I never really kind of got into what it actually is. So the abjection is meant to represent like a place where there kind of is no meaning. And it's a place where meaning collapses. And the abject itself is, it basically threatens life. And it threatens the binary of life. So, for example, the binaries of life could be life and death. But an abject is something that kind of gives you a weird horror feeling inside. And she actually talks about it more in her book, Powers of Horror, an essay on objection, which is a 1980 either book or essay, I'm not quite sure. But she kind of uses uh, Sigmund Freud's idea of the uncanny as a foundation of 
her theory on the abjection, right? And so she kind of breaks it down to kind of physical binaries. An example of an abject material could be maybe blood or vomit or excrement, like shit, you know, or like vaginal discharge. All of these what? things. <laughs> what? Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. It's 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 just like fluids could be abject material as well because like there are things that are inside the body but you don't really recognize them as inside your body. That's why like so much horror showcases so much gore and blood is because it's scary. It's like not a part of our reality. And that's kind of what the abject is. In Carrie the idea of menstrual menstrual blood is treated as an abject, right? In Jennifer's body, the abject is not just the blood and the gore, it's herself. And when women hold power, that is considered an abject because women shouldn't be holding any power. Women shouldn't be overpowering men. They shouldn't be killing men. And so women are seen as the uncanny. They're seen as the odd one. They are seen as monstrous as soon as they hold power. When we hold any power and we have any say, we are either seen as the, you know, overpowering or like the loud feminist, you know? Oh, she's she's so annoying. She's just so opinionated. And people don't like that because it goes against their comfort zone. It goes against their traditional kind of foundations of masculinity. And so that is why... In horror, women are made to be the monstrous feminine. It's because it, it invokes a fear in men that women are not only just sexual, but they are also power and they take back that autonomy of themselves to be sexually manipulative or to be sexually exploitative and, and you know, they kill men. <laughs> Especially because in the film, when she's doing the killing, she says, I need you scared. You have like the men have to be terrified of her for her to properly feed on their feed on them feed on their energy. What is she actually eating? She's eating their bodies, but maybe she's eating the energy of their fear as well. You know, mm. I don't know. I'm not a succubus. I just that ain't me, bro. God, I wish I was. I know. Actually, I can see you as an incubus. Honestly, that that would... that's hot. You can you can eat me any day, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> I I can I can be submissive and breedable for you, okay? Okay, no, we're putting this in. We're both in horny jail. We need the horny vaccine. <laughs> we need the horny vaccine. <laughs> yeah, that's um another thing is that this movie. You would think that either one of us would have an issue with it being so just dogmatically binary, but honestly, I do not have an issue with that. Mm. It feels like, because it's an interesting examination of, you know, like the way that the vast majority of people live their lives and the gender politics, like, don't always have to be like hypersensitive about non-binary identities. And I feel like it's reflective of America, American gender culture as a whole at that time. And I feel like it's interesting because it kind of frames heterosexuality as a curse. Like, every time somebody gets too heterosexual, they die. The The band use the band use their heterosexuality to lure Jennifer in, uh, to, to kill her. 
uh, Jennifer uses heterosexuality, uh, heterosexual attraction to lure all the boys in, and she manipulates them. Like, every time a character dies, it's usually because they went into a situation dick first. But the one time that it's not heterosexual is during the kiss between Needy and Jennifer, and that's the thing, Megan Fox actually played Jennifer as a deeply closeted lesbian, and Needy's sexuality is, well, we don't quite know. But yeah. she enjoyed it, and then yeah. she kind of realised, hey, this is fucked up. And it's really fascinating because there's also this subsect of men wanting to watch the film because of that kiss and that fetishization of homosexuality and how that was used to lure men in to a film that they would not like, just as like Jennifer lured men in with her heterosexuality. And that big kiss, the way it was marketed, was for the male gaze, but the way it is in the film, it's really an extension of the softness and the openness of female affection between each other, because particularly at the age of the characters, like, there's something to be said about female friendships, and, you know, a lot of times, like, there are actual lesbians and historians are, like, good friends. They were close <laughs> they're, they're friends. With, they <laughs> were they, just roommates. Best oh god, friends. They were roommates. Oh my yeah. god, they were roommates, you know? Like, but sometimes I feel like it swings too far the opposite way, and it goes, like, oh, if these two girls are this physically affectionate, that means they must be lesbians. It's like, no. Sometimes that's just an expression of love. Yeah, like, sometimes... You just kiss, you kiss your besties in the mouth and there's just no sexual intentions or romantic intent. You just do it because, you know, you're affectionate and that's fine. You know, that's okay. And, you know. Yeah, just girl things. Killing, just... killing your best friend's boyfriend and making out with her. Just girl things. Just, oh my God, just girl things. Anyways, it's very interesting because the writer and executive producer Diablo Cody actually had this very interesting comment about the film after it was made so she said quote this movie is a commentary on girl and girl hatred sexuality the death of innocence and also politics in the way the town responds to the tragedies any person who dares to respond in an unconventional way is branded a traitor end quote again when these men die when these boys die they have all these huge meetings and all these group therapy things and they're you know united as a town when all these young boys die there could have been more you know they could have they could have been more they had so much potential to be better than they were and it's the same talking point that society gives when men are alleged for sexual assault and sexual harassment. It's that kind of, they could have, they had so much potential. They were just young men. Where is that energy when it comes to the death of a woman? Where is that energy when it comes to the sexual assault and harassment of women? It, the narrative is just constantly there. And another thing is that the more men that die, the less people give a shit. Like, it goes from Needy's narration saying, I felt guilty just breathing. She had that survivor's guilt after the bar fire where a bunch of people died. And then it goes, oh yeah, we had faith. We were fucking idiots. They think it's going to get better. But then more and more young men die. And eventually the narration becomes, sorrow was last week's emotion. It's that gradual, the frog in the boiling water. 
they just become so accustomed to grief and brutality and horror that what once rocked them as a town now is just like a Tuesday, which is kind of a metaphor for school shootings in America. Yeah. It's, and mass shootings it's, overall. There's just so much to unpack with this film. Like we've spoken about the different subsects of feminism that is displayed in the film. We've spoken about Julia Christieva's idea of objection. We've spoken about the reception of the film, you know, Megan Fox and and we've spoken about the, you know, talented women that are actually behind the camera, you know, in the writer's room. And I was looking at the credits, a lot of women of, you know, women of colour and women were actually behind the making of this film. And so this was vision by women about the horrors of being a woman and mm. the way society really pits women together and just the death of the death of womanhood in several different ways and the death of innocence i think the death of innocence really came when we stopped using 2000s emo in our movie soundtracks why did we stop doing that that was the true death of innocence oh my god <laughs> this this soundtrack for this is so good and it's even it's elevated because the the plot kind of like is set off by a band mm. it's like oh yes oh i'm and, in love and even the band as well and how they use they not only took advantage of jennifer they took advantage of the entire town oh yeah that the their main song hit is like based off a fire that they probably caused mm. <laughs> and that that's just and the fact that they got away with it was until the end until the end of course but the fact that they got away with it was messed up. And that actually messed with... That kind of, like, disturbed me a bit was the fact that, like, Jennifer did not even get to have time to go after them. She did... I wanted her to, like, just rip them to shreds and just eat them. And you want that satisfaction because it's a revenge film, right? Yeah, you kind of want that I spit on your grave type vibe. But I guess the, the metaphor is that, you know, a lot of the time they do get away with it. Most of the time they do. Like you said, only through vigilante justice that that's when they didn't. And it's really disturbing. And it's, although it's a fictional horror film, it's genuinely real, you know, in our lives. Yeah. <laughs> God, <laughs> Halloween is disturbing. We went from talking about the thing last year, we're like, oh yeah, practical effects. And now we're just like, maybe the true horrors of Jennifer's body is the horrors of being a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, yeah. it's dark. It's it's getting dark in here. It's a, someone turned the light on. <laughs> okay, before we wrap up, I do have one fun fact the lead singer of the fictional band Low Shoulder was almost Joel Madden or Pete Wenz. I'm so sad. I want to live in the universe where Pete Wenz is in this movie. Oh my god. Because that was during the height of him, like, at his, like, at the peak of his fame, right? Uh, 2009? Yeah, about that. Yeah. Oh my god. There were also, like, Fallout Boy posters in the film as well. Yeah, you see a Fallout Boy poster before you see Megan Fox. I love that. I it was. Love it's that. my first note. I just like yelled at Fallout Boy. You know what? I also yelled that Chris Pratt. <laughs> Same. Oh my I god! Like, Seeing him was like, like That's it was even Prairie Parks and Rec Chris Pratt, or like yeah. about that time. I was just like, yo, baby Chris Pratt. It's a Mario. It's 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 Mario. And then J.K. Simmons. I was like, bro, oh is this Oscar god. winner J.K. Simmons? 
J.K. Simmons in this movie when, like, he hears a boy getting ripped in half and he's just like, let, let it, it out, kids. Out. Let, let it all out. out. <laughs> I was just like, hilarious. Oh, it was just really funny because I was just watching and I was like, oh my god, Chris Pratt, J.K. Simmons, what the hell? Like, I was I was kind of frothing because I love J.K. Simmons. Um, oh, yeah. I don't I don't like Chris Pratt. This is, nah. a, this is a Chris Pratt hate space. I'm so yeah. sorry to say it, but... This is... I'm ambivalent about him, but... Mm. Yeah. So, um, that about wraps it up for today. Uh, if you want to follow us on social media, we are on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, Letterboxd, TikTok, and Twitter. And all our sources will be in the description below. Um, thanks for joining. I've been Nick. I've been Mon. Happy Halloween. Ooh. You fuckers. Bye. <laughs>